And here we see Jesus the Lamb opening the first of the uh, first four seals. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice that sounded like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's the normal cheerful death and destruction of Revelation this morning. Hallelujah. We're only going to do half of the first chapter, I'm afraid. We're going to stop at the end of the, uh, the, the fourth horseman because we haven't got enough time to do it. So sorry about that. So there'll be lots of questions that I probably won't even touch on. But, but that's, that's Revelation for you, isn't it? And just to begin with, remember what I said about apocalyptic literature. So Revelation is apocalyptic, that's its genre, and so that means that nothing is written kind of by mistake. It, it means something. So if there's a random colour or a random number or something sounds a bit weird, you're right, it does sound weird, but there must be a reason for it. Uh, and just like in episodes of Grey's Anatomy that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, you can read one section by itself and kind of get it, but it's always better when we take a step back and look at the whole wider narrative of the Bible uh, to, to help us. And so we read just then of four seals. And, and back in chapter 5 before, if you remember, the writer is, is weeping because no one can open the seal. No one is worthy to open the seal. And then it's the, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain that is worthy to open the seal. So it's the Lamb of God that has the authority. He's the triumphant one. Uh, and these four seals here are better known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Hands up if you've heard that phrase before, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
Yeah, quite a few of us have heard that phrase. If not, that probably just means you haven't watched a random film about it on Netflix. Um, Hollywood loves this sense of four horsemen, the infamous four that ride across the world at the end of time, killing everyone. I don't know how quick these horses must travel to get around the whole world, but, but they do it, and the riders kill everyone, or most people, and then Jesus comes back. That's kind of what we think. But is that an accurate reading of Revelation 6? Last week, many of us would have been saddened to hear the wanton destruction of this tree behind me. It's the sycamore tree on Hadrian's Wall. This tree was around 300 years old, and it stood in a bit called the Sycamore Gap in 2016. It was named Tree of the Year. Who knew that was a thing? Um, and this most photographed tree was chopped down on Wednesday. A few days later, you might have seen this, a chap called Kieran Chapman, <laughs> a chap called, uh, I didn't, I just thought it was quite funny, a chap called Kieran Chapman bought a sapling from a local garden centre, carried it about, I think I worked it out, the path is a few miles, maybe two or three miles, carried it up the hill and planted it. He was, he was in, in his early 20s, and he said that he wanted to restore the beauty spot to its former glory. And I share these two things because you have one act that is really selfish. Uh, there's almost no point to it, just thinking of himself, some random person chopping down a tree. No one else will benefit from that at all. It's totally selfish. And on the other side, you have this chap who is doing the opposite selflessly buying a tree out of his own money, carrying it up the hill and planting it. Unfortunately, <coughs> the National Trust uh, removed it because they said it would encourage more people to plant it. But ignore that part for my sermon. Um, I don't want to refer to the National Trust as the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. That wouldn't be good. <laughs> I mean, they do charge quite a lot for their cake, but it's probably not worthy of being thrown into hell for eternity. Um, where were we? So uh, we've got these two acts, haven't we? One totally selfish and one totally selfless. And I wonder if there's something about this that's threaded through these four horsemen of the apocalypse, that these four horsemen symbolize the ultimate selfishness and self-centeredness, the worst bits of humanity. So we're going to look at these four horsemen. So Netflix would suggest they're like this. I mean, to be fair, it does look like a good film, I think. A bit like the Noah film that I watched with increasing anger that it was so unbiblical, but I had to confess it was quite a good film. Uh, maybe it would be a bit like that. But, but Netflix suggests and, and culture suggests that these four horsemen, these mythical beings, ride around the world killing everyone. But hopefully we know enough about Revelation now to know that even though that's, there's parts of that which are true, I want to suggest that they are not a literal four horses. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just honouring the book of Revelation as a, uh, an apocalyptic literature that we work out what symbolism is what. So we're going to go through those four horses really briefly. We're going to look at what they might have meant to the reader back then and what they mean now. There's deep symbolism. And I want to say that what, what happened, what it tells us about human nature was true then when it was written, but I do think there's a sense that it will get worse until Jesus returns. I think that's a fair reading. I think that's what the writer of Revelation could be suggesting. But I'm not saying that before Jesus comes back, four horses are going to start riding around the world. I, I don't think that's a, a helpful way 
of reading it. And it's also worth saying that these horsemen aren't angels. They're not agents of God's wrath. Yes, the seals are opened, but God doesn't send them out. I want to suggest that it's more of a God saying, you know what, humans, do what you want. Um, I've given you free will. And when humans do what humans do best, we see selfishness and, and often depravity and, and things like that. It's what happens when we ignore God. So horse number one, <coughs> excuse me, verse three. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. <coughs> to begin with, it sounds a bit like Jesus. A white horse, a crown, a conqueror. We might, I think, would be forgiven, first of all, by saying, isn't that Jesus? Because that's often what we think. But actually, I want to suggest that, that it's not. And there's a reason why it's a little bit like Jesus. It's a little bit like Jesus to kind of show us that these pagan gods try and be as much like God as they can be, but they're slightly different. I think, therefore, that this horse is better at symbolizing other religions, particularly pagan religions back when the book was written, and that they set themselves up as an alternative to Jesus. They set themselves up and say, hey, I'm, I'm quite like Jesus. You might as well follow me. Back in the context of this book, Greek mythology was a big thing. It was the in thing. It was a bit like now, maybe, the psychic fairs that pop up everywhere. It's quite cool to do that. It's not cool to be a Christian and believe in God, but it's cool to believe in the spiritual stuff. I mean, that's a different conversation. Back then, Greek mythology was a bit like that. And if we know our Greek mythology, which I don't, but some of you might, we might know there was a god called Apollos, and he had a bow. He often was seen carrying a bow. He'll come up again, by the way, in chapter 12. So one thing that this horse symbolizes, I think, is how pagan religions, other belief systems, can set themselves up against the truth of Jesus. And that isn't uh, stuck back in the first, second century, is it? We see it today with the belief systems that say, believe what you want, it's all the same. With a culture that says, you believe what you want to believe, and you have your truth, and I'll have my truth. And we have that uncomfortable a place to stand which says, no, we believe Jesus is the truth. He is the one. Something else we see back in the time this book was written was the constant threat of invasion from other forces, particularly the Parthian Empire. They were a big empire over in the east. They were known for their skills of archery. They were known for including only white horses in their cavalry. So when the readers would have read this book, their mind would have gone to maybe Apollos, the pagan gods, but they'd have also gone to the reality of the neighboring invading forces. That empire was one that Rome had never been able to beat. A bit like Asterisk the Gaul, for those of you that used to read Asterisk, that little annoying bit. That's what Parthian was like, the Parthian empire. They'd never been beaten. And that the, 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 the news of an incoming invasion by the Parthians was enough to get you dressed double quick and ready for action. So, so far from being a literal horse at the end of time, this first horse, I think, reminds us of pagan religions angling for attention and other powerful empires threatening for peace. Threatening the peace. And we live in a fairly peaceful time here in the UK, but we've just seen yesterday in Gaza and Israel, 
of how easily peace has broken. We see in the Ukraine border how this, I want to argue, this horse is still riding today. It wasn't just riding back then. It's not in the stable and ready to come out when Jesus returns. It's riding today. That idea of people angling for conquest, that's what it said in verse 3, conquest. And conquest, conquest speaks of human selfishness. You're not going to go in conquest, are you? You're not going to want to do that if you're a selfless person. But if you're selfish, that's what you want to go, go and do. Go and take as much as you can. Horse number one. Horse number two then, a fiery red one. Its rider in verse four was given power again to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. Even, if, even as I'm saying this, we might be aware of places around the world where this horse is riding today as well. And remember the importance of symbolism in apocalyptic writing. We have a fiery red horse. It's not red just because the writer thought, let me pick a different colour. It's red because when we think of red, we think of danger, bloodshed, violence and warfare. Particularly here, civil war. People turning on each other that shouldn't be turning on each other. Right at the end of verse 4, that phrase, to make people kill each other. This would have been fresh in the minds of the people that were reading this letter. They were living in a time of quite strong civil war, particularly between the Jewish people. There was a time in AD 60 and 70 where more Jews were killed by fellow Jews than were killed by Rome and Romans. So the Roman army weren't the one persecuting the Jewish people. There was a significant five or six years where the Jewish people were killing each other. A sense then of this red horse riding. They were also living, interestingly, in the Roman Empire, which might have, you might have heard of the phrase Pax Romana, if you're a historian. That was the Roman Empire's motto, Roman peace. But it was peace that was only peace that was kind of forced to happen. It was like, hey, we'll give you peace as long as you do exactly what we say, and if you don't, we'll kill you. I mean, I'd go for peace then, right? So this was peace that was forced peace. It wasn't real peace. And so there's a sense here, as the red horse rides and makes peace and takes peace, that the people back then would have thought, that's the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the Romans who are invading, killing us, invading our country, and forcing us into this Pax Romana. Again, then, we see selfishness and greed. We want power, we want authority, we want to be the ones in charge. And, and again, I want to argue, the red horse is still riding today. We can think of places, as I said, where there's selfishness and greed, civil war. Verse 5, then. There before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. This one's a bit different, and it's a bit weirder. You can kind of have the red horse and the sword, you know what they're on about, but here you have almost the bake-off <laughs> on a horse. You can imagine them riding along with scales and some flour. What on earth is it all about? And moaning about how expensive wine is. So do we have a kind of slightly drunk baker riding a horse. It's, we've got to look into, again, the context a bit more. But there's actually no deep hidden meaning here at all. It's talking about a cost of living crisis. What he says is this, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That's back in verse 6. Do not damage the oil and the wine. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Normally, you'd be able to buy six quarts of wheat for a denarius. That was one day's wages. So what this horse rider is saying is, 
everything's so much more expensive. You can't really afford food like you used to. A day's wages won't get round enough like it used to. You're going to struggle to feed your family. Well, that's not, again, too far removed from where we are today. I want to argue, again, that the black horse is riding. A few months ago, a food bank charity said 1,200 food banks distributed 3 million food parcels between April and March, 40% rise from last year. Those of us connected with the Thomas Project will know that as soon as those shelves are full of food, and we think, great, we're there, within a week, a few days, they've gone, and we need to be looking at filling them up again. This isn't a black horse that was just riding around in the first century. This rides today. And what does food poverty come from? It comes from the selfishness of people that aren't able to share what they've got. That's kind of what I want to argue, really. There's enough food in the world to go around, but we like to try and make our money from it. Um, the black horse rides today. And we worship a God who fed the hungry. We worship a God who did miracles to provide wine at a wedding and a picnic to 5,000 people. We worship a generous God, despite the fact the black horse rides as well. And as I said, I think what we see in Revelation is this getting worse and worse before the Lord returns. Finally, a pale horse. Hard to get a picture of a pale horse. What did I choose for this one? That's kind of pale. I know it's white, but... White is pale, isn't it? It's kind of greedy pale. I think, I mean, I should have looked at what the word pale means, because I think it's better thinking of it as a green horse. I'm sure I've seen it in other translations as green. Um, maybe if you've got another translation. Sickly green. Is that what your, your Bible says? Or is that what Sue's making up? So oh, that makes sense, a kind of sickly green pale. You know when you feel a bit, a bit woozy. And so verse 8, I looked, and there beh- behind, before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades, that's kind of the place of the dead, was following close behind him. So here I want to say this shows it that it must be symbolic, because death, how can death ride a horse, and how can the place of the dead be behind the horse following it? So, so there's clearly some deep symbolism going on. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. A theologian called Fanning says this. She writes, These four things, sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beast of the earth, these four things are the effect of human anarchy and societal decay. Sounds good, doesn't it? I can see some nodding going on. We're coming into land. We'll look at the other seals next week. But, but here we are in the middle of generosity week. And we realize that maybe that threaded throughout the story of these five horsemen of the apocalypse is what happens when, when there isn't a God of generosity about. What happens when, when God is not on the scene, as it were. There's a depravity of humanity. It's a good sentence, isn't it? The depravity of humanity. What humans do when they're left to their own devices become a little bit selfish and keep food to themselves, keep their health to themselves, They want to get as much land as they can, as much power as they can. It happened back in the first century. It happens today. And it will only get worse, I think, until Jesus comes back. Because he's the Prince of Peace. He's the one who will restore all things. We sung of that earlier. But until then, we live in a world where the horses are riding. Hear me right. I'm not saying that if you 
if we don't give financially to church, we are joining with the horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> That's shoehorning in a really poor theological point. But what I do want to argue is that what we see here is that a generous God asks his people to be generous in all sorts of ways. And in a world where warfare and conquest aren't actually that shocking, I mean, when we turned the news on the other night and saw what was happening in Gaza and Israel, I wasn't actually that shocked. I was horrified, but I wasn't surprised. I mean, maybe it's just me, but... But when these things happen, we go, yeah, that's the world we live in. It's awful. And I want to say that maybe our response should be that we are shockingly generous. That the way we're generous with our time and our finances and ourselves with other people causes people to go, why are you doing that? That truly is shocking. Last week, we celebrated God's generosity. and, And I just want to spend a bit of time now, just a few moments, thinking about ourselves and our generosity. You've got in front of you a yellow bit of paper. And it has a few different things that you might want to think about your generosity with. And we've shared with our churches financially. We've shared quite openly. We've got more money going out than is coming in. We've shared that we've got around six grand that we need to find. And there's lots of different ways that we could be generous on that bit of paper. And we're going to have a song in a minute. And, and as we sing that, I invite you to prayerfully consider what you could do to be generous in response to a God who is generous to us. It's almost like we're riding against, we're riding into battle, as it were, against the four horsemen with banners of love and faithfulness and flags of celebration that say, God is good, he loves us, he is generous. And we're riding against that societal decay which sounds harsh, but I think, if we're honest, we know exists. We're riding against the worst that humanity can be with a God who loves us and calls us to follow him. And we see that most uh, strongly on the empty cross behind me, that Jesus, God himself on the cross, was so generous. He could have given it all up. He could have taken himself off the cross. He had legions of angels at his disposal, but he hung and he died for me. And for you to take on all of our sin, the bad stuff we do, so that we might have life in all its fullness. Not just life that will do, but Jesus offers life in all its fullness, in abundance. And that's why, halfway down that sheet, the best thing we can do, the most generous thing we can do, is say, Lord Jesus, have my life, I want to follow you. And if today you're sat there thinking, I'm not sure if I've done that, or maybe you're watching online and you haven't responded in that way, I'd love you to come to the prayer team in a minute. They'll be stood over there or come and grab me or someone afterwards and say, I want to know more about following Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you about that. For those of us that have been Christians for a long time, there are a range of other things we might want to do. And if you're here this morning as a visitor or you're watching online, please just maybe pray more generally. What what is the Lord asking you to do in your life for generosity? So we're going to have a moment of quiet. We're going to sing a song behind you. You can join in if you want, but I invite you, I think, to remain seated for that song, and then we'll sing a couple more at the end. If you want a pen and you haven't got one, the wardens, I'm sure, will come round soon with a pot of pens in case you want to make a, a physical response of ticking a box, putting your email address on it, and putting it in the offering basket. You don't have to, but that might be a helpful thing for you to do. 
So just a moment of quiet, and as always, we pray, come Holy Spirit. You are a generous God. You, You lavish, Lord, your love on us. We see that at the cross of Calvary, the empty tomb, and, and all we can do, all we can respond with is our lives. And we want you to, to know that we love you this morning, Lord Jesus. We want to follow you. And Lord God, in the middle of this generosity week, help us to know how we might respond with generous hearts to a God who loves us. How can we ride against those four horsemen that, that ride today and will keep riding? So in the quiet, please come, Holy Spirit. As we stay in this quiet, there's a couple of words that we had before we prayed, before the service when we prayed. One was a sore heel. Maybe you've come to church this morning and your heel is sore. We'd love to pray for physical healing for you. And another one with a picture of a crossroads. Maybe you feel this morning that that's where you are. You've got a big decision to make um, and you'd like some prayer for, not advice, but you'd like someone to pray with you into that situation. Um, The prayer team in a minute will be stood over there on the side. They'd love to pray with you. Or anything else that's come up this morning. Particularly, as I said, if you haven't yet responded to the Lord Jesus, who is a generous God and loves us, and you'd like to know more about following him, why not go and talk to one of them? So we're, gonna, we're, we're going to remain seated for this song. You might want to sing along. You might want to read through that sheet. You might want to read that Bible verse again. It's up to you as we think about all God has done for us and how one day we will see him face to face.